Welcome to the Crisis Podcast. My name is Travis Atkinson, and I am your host. Join me as we discover the people behind the services and systems that treat and care for those experiencing a mental health crisis. Welcome to the Crisis Podcast. I am Travis Atkinson, your host, here to bring you all of the good stuff, everything you need or could ever want about behavioral health crisis services. A few announcements before we get into today's episode. The Crisis Podcast has spawned. It has multiplied, if you will, and... There is a sister podcast, which is called The Crisis Podcast, COVID-19. Now, you might be asking yourselves, why? Why is there a sister podcast? Well, the intent of this podcast was to provide timeless information about crisis service delivery in the behavioral health world. And I was doing that through in-person interviews long-form interviews to kind of talk about the why behind the work that people do. And then we had a global pandemic, which severely inhibits a podcaster's ability to do in-person interviews. And I've described this in a couple of the podcasts as far as my methods and my reasons. And so I won't go into that anymore, but I also knew that there was a lot of relevant information that needed to get out to people which is why I decided to go a different direction and bring people more timely information and interviews in the form of the crisis podcast, COVID-19. So that podcast is now live and you can find it in all the same places that you might've found um, the, the crisis podcast. So I encourage you to check that out. You can hear interviews with myself and, uh, service delivery professionals in crisis services. That's a funny phrase. I don't know why I said that, but uh, mobile crisis team supervisors and crisis call center directors and crisis residential program supervisors. So check that out. You can also become a fan of the Facebook page, which gives you actual live streams of those podcasts. So they are recorded on Facebook and then the audio is taken from the Facebook recording and put into the podcast. So check that out, either follow or like the page if you want to know about all the latest. Also want to give a shout out to all of the new countries outside the United States that the Crisis Podcast is being listened to, places like Canada, New Zealand, Ireland, the UK, Malaysia, and Australia. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing the message uh, to your fellow uh, crisis constituents, passionate advocates and, and providers and the like. Also want to share that I was part of a, a, a group that formed in March of 2020 called the Pandemic Crisis Services Response Coalition. And as one of the co-founders, we helped to launch 
a website called covidmentalhealthsupport.org. Now, this website has information about all or many of the crisis helplines in the United States. So if you or a loved one is experiencing emotional distress, you can go to covidmentalhealthsupport.org. You can use the Find a Helpline tool and find both national and locally available helplines based on whatever you're struggling with. There's also some other resources on there that I encourage you to check out. And just like when you see a family photo, perhaps the first thing you do if you're anything like me is to try to find your face in the picture. So in the same way, if you want to check and see if your helplines are listed, please do that. And there's a form you can fill out on the website if you'd like your helpline to be included. So very excited about that. Hope you hope you can check that out. Now on to today's episode. So I will be sharing a recording from the 2019 Crisis Residential Conference in which our plenary speaker, Dr. Deborah Pinels, talked about crisis services and the importance of a continuum of services as well as some trends um, in other parts of the world. So if I haven't mentioned it on this podcast before, I am the president of the Crisis Residential Association. And Dr. Pinels is one of those people in the industry that has been so inspiring for me. And it's, it's been largely through her writings. She has written a number of papers in collaboration with the National Association of State Mental Health Program Directors and the Treatment Advocacy Center on various aspects of crisis services. And I will give an introduction here in the, in the recording itself, but she wrote a seminal paper called Beyond Beds, The Vital Role of a Full Continuum of Psychiatric Care. If you haven't read that, I highly encourage you to do so. It's available uh, for download from the NASHBID website. And I was just tickled. I was just so grateful to have Dr. Pinels speaking at the conference last year. So much wisdom, um, so um, thoughtful and, and compassionate in the way that she looks at mental health policy and what our communities need. So I can't wait to share her talk with you. So without further ado, here is Dr. Deborah Pinels at the 2019 Crisis Residential Conference. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Deborah Pinels. Uh, Dr. Pinels is the director of the program in psychiatry, law, and ethics, and clinical professor of psychiatry at the University of Michigan, and the medical director of behavioral health and forensic programs for the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. She was the assistant commissioner of forensic services and the interim state medical director for the Massachusetts Department of Mental Health. She has worked in outpatient, inpatient settings, forensic and correctional facilities, emergency rooms and court clinics, 
has received public service awards, and has been an expert witness in many cases. She is, a board she is board certified in psychiatry, forensic psychiatry, and addiction medicine. She has taught and published extensively and led justice and behavioral health federal grants. She is a past president of the American Academy of Psychiatry and the Law, current chair of the American Psychiatric Association Council on Psychiatry and the Law, and past chair of the Forensic Division and current secretary of the Medical Director's Division of NASHBID. She is a senior consultant to Policy Research Associates Incorporated and SAMHSA Gaines Center. In this presentation, Dr. Pinals reviews policy framework that addresses the vital role of a continuum of care and how the crisis response fits into that continuum. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Deborah Pinals. for hugging. All right, great. Hi, everybody. Welcome. Uh, it is really quite an honor to be here presenting at this conference. Um, it's just a pleasure to work with Travis, and I am just so thrilled to be invited to be your speaker today. Uh, you know, a lot of you, what you heard in my background speaks to my role in the justice, you know, working at the justice interface. And I would say, having been trained as a forensic psychiatrist, it's ironic that you see in the forensic system basically a lot of places where the system's broken down. And so my pathway to getting into this invitation and being here and being uh, a medical director in a state and, and thinking about policy on a national and state level is really through that pathway of seeing where the systems aren't working as well and where the individuals we're serving are uh, getting stuck, and that includes in emergency rooms, as Travis already mentioned, as well as in our nation's jails and prisons and homelessness, and I don't have to tell this group about that. And so the crisis residential piece of this uh, as an answer to one part of that continuum is just so critical. So when I was invited to speak, I was really thrilled to, to accept the invitation and talk a little bit about what's been discussed really on a national level. So the work I'm, I'm talking about um, is based on work that was funded in part through the National Association of State Mental Health Program Directors, also found, fondly known as NASHBID, uh, where I've moved from being secretary of the medical director's division to being chair of the medical director's division. Uh, and I was asked to write, in the last three years, um, the three of the what they call the umbrella policy papers. And these are papers that are free and available to the public, and they were funded through the uh, uh, through grants to NASHBID, but via SAMHSA. So um, just want to clarify what that what this is where this is coming from, and it really speaks to this trying to change the dialogue. And so um, I also want to just acknowledge a little bit about who helped me think about changing the dialogue. One is my co-author on two of these papers, um, Doris Fuller. Uh, Doris Fuller is a uh, journalist, a Washington Post journalist, uh, now mental health advocate, and the mother of a daughter who had serious mental illness. And that is where she began her passionate work as a mental health uh, advocate. Uh, and then Brian Hepburn, who's the executive director for NASHBID. And NASHBID, for those of you that aren't familiar with it, uh, represents $41 billion of public mental health systems serving 7.5 million people annually in all 50 states, four territories in the District of Columbia. 
It's affiliated with approximately 195 state psychiatric hospitals serving 147,000 people per year and 41,000 people at any one point in time. And so Nashville has a platform in the conversation of state mental health directors. And I'm not speaking for Nashville. I just did this work on behalf of them and I want to acknowledge um, Brian. So we can take our journey back beyond, uh, b before Lauren Mosier, who by the way was a dear and personal friend of mine when I befriended his wife, who was a social worker at the National Institute of Mental Health, where I did years of schizophrenia research. And uh, she and I became close collaborators and then um, we became uh, good friends. And, and her husband, Lauren, who started the Soteria Project at the time, everybody was like, what is this? Satiria project, so it's just fascinating and wonderful to hear it come back around as such a such an Im important and enriching kind of experiment, really that really showed the power of of these kinds of crisis residential services. But we can go back to before Lauren and talk about where Kennedy was in 1963 when he made a special message to Congress, talking about mental illness and using the former terminology, but I've updated it to intellectual and developmental disabilities as among the most critical health problems in our nation. They occur more frequently, affect more people, require more prolonged treatment, cause more suffering by the families of the afflicted, waste more of our human resources, and constitute more financial drain than any other single condition. And he said further, we cannot afford to postpone any longer a reversal in our approach to mental affliction. For too long, the shabby treatment of the many millions of the mentally disabled in custodial institutions and many millions more now in communities needing help has been justified on grounds of inadequate funds, further studies, and future promises. We can procrastinate no more. His words are no more important, no less important in that today than they were back when he stated them in 1963. We move forward in time as we look at many different markers that got us to this national conversation. For example, in 1977, in a psychiatric services edition celebrating the 50th anniversary of that journal, um, there was a review of many mental health services looking, looking way back looking into 1977 when the General Accounting Office published the first governmental study of the problems of deinstitutionalization called Returning the Mentally Disabled to the Community, the Government Needs to Do More. Then in 1991, another quote, once a way station on the path to definitive care, emergency departments are, for many, the end of the line. Their halls and examining rooms have become the new asylums. That was back in 1991. And now, in 2017, just two years ago, what inspired this conversation of the vital role of the continuum of care uh, was that everywhere there were headlines, and there still are today, headlines about the cry for more beds. And you heard this in the first, in the first talk. Mental health hospital filled with inmates while other patients wait for help. Mental health problems put stress on emergency rooms. And everybody wanted to talk about beds. So Brian Hepburn, uh, the, again, the executive director of Nashbid said, you know, I'm getting all these calls from all these commissioners. All these reporters want to talk about beds. But is the solution really the state psychiatric hospital? Isn't, 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 what is the state psychiatric hospital for these days? Is that really the solution? Are those really the beds that we need to have? So he says, he calls me up. He says, I want you to write this paper. We're doing a whole series of technical assistance papers. And I want you to write this paper that's that's going to really focus on the vital role of the continuum of care and see if we can help change the dialogue a little bit. 
and move from these messages that put out these big picture graphics that talk about how, if you look closely, um, how many beds are needed. So you, it starts with one in four prison inmates have a serious mental illness, 400,000 inmates have a mental health disorder. No one would discount some of those statistics. But then it starts to talk about bed counts in psychiatric wards are far below the numbers. And it puts into the conversation and into the framework of people watching these media reports a direct linkage of if we had more inpatient psychiatric beds, we would solve all these other problems. But what it doesn't convey is the complexity of the humans and the needs and the way the system has evolved into thinking beyond institutional-based care. And so this is where this paper uh, came, came to be. And essentially, my co-author and I, one night, were just scratching our heads talking about this. And I said, just, gosh, we need to just write something that's, that just speaks beyond beds. And she said, that's our title. That's our paper. So the paper became Beyond Beds, The Vital Role of the Continuum of uh, psychiatric care. This paper actually was promoted through the Treatment Advocacy Center and, and NASHBID, which if anyone knows politics, they're not groups that naturally always align. But in this conversation, it was important to get that alignment, uh, especially because some of the bed count numbers had come out of the Treatment Advocacy Center, but it was trying to move both advocacy groups, both groups, towards a conversation that would help yield more information about what could a continuum of care uh, look like. Now, Nashwood had produced another technical assistance paper a few years before talking about the vital role of the state psychiatric hospital. So none of this was to say the answer to the question of do we need more beds or don't we need more beds. The, this, this paradigm shift was to say we're not asking the right question. We need to look at the entire continuum of care to understand really what bed need there really is. So no one's opposed to inpatient beds. No one's even opposed to more inpatient beds. It's sort of understanding what role do the beds play as part of that array of services. And I know I'm preaching to the choir and saying all of this. So Nashwood had produced this paper a few years before in 2014 talking about the vital role of state psychiatric hospitals in which it really outlined the state psychiatric hospitals as kind of shifting in framework in many ways to being more forensically oriented, to being more like we would think of longer term rehabilitative support services for people who, whose um, uh, challenges in the community presented um, barriers to their successfully being in the community and recognizing that still even with that those state hospitals needed that direct pathway to community-based services and, and, and step-down care thinking about the population that gets to the state psychiatric hospital as largely a population with a lot of trauma in their background. Uh, uh, and so thinking about the trauma-informed approaches that would be necessary to kind of reshape that conversation. Now, there was also a study done in 2017. It was published in, by Nashbit in 2018 that also looked at, for the first time in many years, trying to coalesce where are beds, what are beds, uh, what, that are available, and really looked at the state psychiatric hospital as a, you know, again, from a historical reference. If you look at the state psychiatric hospital beds in 1970, about 30% were aged 65 or over, 
24% were those that we would, that were in those days considered having organic brain syndrome, which today we might consider a neurocognitive condition, which would currently be in nursing homes. 9% um, had intellectual, uh, or in intellectual developmental disorders. 7% had alcohol or drug use disorders. Um, in 2014, the bed population in the state hospitals shifted. Uh, and so when we think about the media reports that say we need more beds, there's still this notion of all these beds being beds for all people and what they were back in the day. But the state psychiatric hospitals are really different now. So they serve a different need, they serve a different population, and we do so much better with serving people in the community even though we're really not where we need to be by any stretch of the imagination. But our whole framework for a lot of reasons has shifted. The Americans with Disabilities Act has helped shift that conversation to the importance of having people with disabilities living full and meaningful lives in community settings as much as possible in the least restrictive settings as possible. So it re led us in our discussion to this conversation of like, okay, people are talking about beds, but what do we mean by beds? What type of beds are needed? Acute, transitional, rehabilitative, long-term, or other? Are there differences in the needs for different age groups, youth, adults, older persons, and diagnoses that need to be reflected in the bed composition? And what are the evidence-based outpatient practices that would reduce bed demand by reducing the likelihood that a crisis will develop or by diverting individuals in crisis to an appropriate setting outside of the hospitals, whether that's for short-term crisis res or longer-term uh, services? So the other thing that we did in this paper, and, and um, you can get a link to this paper, uh, and we, we can probably make that available to you through Lindsay. Um, the other thing that we did is we, we thought about, you know, when we're having these conversations with policymakers, and I'm an internal policymaker because I work in, within, my role is embedded within state government, I know that a lot of times people don't understand what we're talking about because this is foreign language to people and you can't expect them to understand all of it. So we had this idea of introducing a story and weaving in my co-author's journalistic style and talking about a person, we invented a person named Taylor. We had many arguments about whether what Taylor should look like and then one day she said, well, Taylor's a smoker. I said, Taylor's a smoker? She said, well, of course he has to be a smoker. We have to make it realistic. He's, he's gonna have, we're gonna have to talk about his comorbid medical needs. So we have to make Taylor a smoker. So Taylor became a smoker who was out one night um, with psychotic illness, plagued by voices, drinking alcohol to curb them, and came home and shattered plates to try and quell the voices. And his mother called 911, going down the pathway, and we try and depict what happens in the typical circumstance to what could be the possibility of what could happen if the world looked a little differently with that vital continuum of care. And so we talked about what happens in a typical psychiatric crisis, Law enforcement might respond. There might be a specialized police response. There might be collaborative police mental health responses, or there might be a mental health response, like in a mobile crisis outreach. In the emergency room, if Taylor's lucky enough to be brought to the emergency room instead of being arrested and taken to the local lockup, if he's brought to the emergency room, what happens in the emergency room? Well, having worked in the emergency room for many, many years, and I still cover emergency room services, a lot of times we are faced with in or out. You know, they coming into the hospital or they going out of the hospital. What are the options? If there's no options, we're faced with a, di a dyadic decision, so it gets to that continuum. Unfortunately, emergency department outcomes include 
often discharged by arrest. You would be surprised, perhaps or not surprised, to see how many people enter into the forensic system by being arrested out of treatment programs, including emergency services, where we're now doing competency evaluations on somebody who assaulted somebody in an emergency room. There's got to be a better way. Discharge without support, discharge with support, emergency boarding, I don't have to tell this group about, and hospital ad admission rates, which are higher if, they, if people are sent initially to an emergency department. So in this study of, by the, uh, the NASHBIDS Research Institute, which is also known as NRI, in that same time frame, they looked at psychiatric bed capacity in 2014. And of course, we know the state psychiatric bed capacity has shrunk over many years from the 1950s. Uh, and they wanted to look at, well, where are all the beds currently if we really think about how do we define beds in a different way? And so they looked across multiple organizations nationally and tried to coalesce in the, probably the best study of beds of a variety of kinds that's available in our country to this day. Part of the challenges is there's not really a national source of data for all the places where beds are. So for example, inpatient beds, you could look at state psychiatric hospitals. Um, you could look at, uh, but oftentimes that data is mixed with county hospitals. Um, private psychiatric hospitals, which are standalone facilities, general hospitals with separate psychiatric units, what we call scatter beds, which are when somebody's in the emergency room but admitted to inpatient services, but there's no quote unquote inpatient bed to send them to, they may get sent to a medical floor with a sitter. So we have people sitting in scatter beds in the general hospital. We have people in the VA system. We have residential treatment centers. Other specialty mental health providers, inpatient residential beds, and then Department of uh, Defense medical centers. And I don't know, Travis, whether your data was counted in this study, but if they do it again, we want to make sure we understand where crisis residential beds uh, fit in. So they also looked at residential treatment centers, um, other 24-hour residential bed types of capacities, and you can see what the breakdown is. So we are not in the era of 19. 70 when the only option was state psychiatric hospitals. We've got to understand where are people going and what is, what is the flow. This is the same data that looks also at nursing homes as part of the bed capacity if we look at the older adult population that or any population really that qualifies for nursing home level of care uh, for people with serious mental illness like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. So it's sort of fascinating to see depending on how you look at the continuum and how you count it to see how beds are being utilized. One of the things we know for sure is that states are making efforts to put more money and, and, and more with the closure of state psychiatric hospitals, more dollars have shifted towards community resources. Now, that's a complex conversation in and of itself um, in terms of how it gets allocated and for what services and how federal funding gets leveraged. And so we still have this very complicated analysis to understand how many state hospital beds would even be needed and what does this continuum of care look like. So from this study that NRI put together on state mental health profiles, states were reporting a, a variety of policies to address shortages in their state, including expanding and promoting the use of crisis centers to divert individuals away from inpatient psychiatric beds. And one of the things I love about this conference is that conversation because a crisis center is great, but a crisis center that deals with something for less than 24 hours 
is still going to have the question of what do we do next with this person whose needs may still need additional supports. Um, working with local hospitals to open mental health beds, increasing use of assertive community treatment teams and other community supports to avoid hospitalization, focusing on transition from hospitals to community to reduce rehospitalization and permit more rapid discharge of clients ready for community integration. And ironically, only three states reported plans to open new state hospital beds. Most states have come to the realization, although it's, there's no exact science, but if you build more state beds, you will fill more state beds because they operate at full capacity. But is that really the answer when on any given day, most state hospitals also have people in their mix that are trying to get out into the community? And um, you could actually more efficiently use your state hospital beds, your existing state hospital beds, if you could transition more people out into community services. And we're learning a lot about how do we stratify care. Illness is not static over time, needs shift, personal interactions, stressors in life. So operationalizing standardized levels of care can be challenging, but can be really important as we shift this paradigm in this conversation. For example, in the substance use world, where I spend a lot of my policy energy, we know that people are sent to substance use residential services because they, they have a housing need. Not because they necessarily need that ASAM level of care, it's, just, it's because they have a housing need. So how do we, so part of the reason why the ASM level of care has become so important in the billing conversation is to say, let's get the treatment services where they need to be and address other needs in a different way if that's what's needed. And so these level of care conversations become important and where crisis res fits into that is gonna be part of that dialogue. Many of you may be familiar with the sequential intercept model, which was first written about in psychiatric services in 2006. It's now actually codified in federal statute in the 21st Century Cures Act, which really looks at, it, it really is a kind of a model that was developed out of this idea of the overpenetration of people with serious mental illness in the criminal justice system, and the idea of that you build intercept points where decisions are made about how the case is processed from the beginning of arrest all the way through to the court hearings, to jails, to reentry, and to how parole and probation supervise people and build pathways out into treatment, you could actually reduce the penetration of people with mental illness and co-occurring substance use disorders from the justice system. About a year and a half ago, they, the architects of this model added intercept zero, which is really to say, how do we get before the police? Why are the police even being called? What can we build in our crisis continuum that would allow for a crisis to be quelled without necess necessitating the involvement of a law enforcement response? This is an example out of um, Charlotte, North Carolina, where they not only did a mapping exercise to look at their whole sequential intercept model, but they did a drill down on intercept zero to understand, and this is something that communities all over the country are doing and maybe should be doing, to really understand what are the crisis resources at all levels, crisis not emergency, emergency, post-crisis, and where do people go, and how does the community serve them to get at those calculated uh, needs. When we wrote the Beyond Beds paper, there were several other technical assistance papers that came with it that talk about specialized services. I would encourage you all to look at this website and look at all of these because they each give you some tidbits about this continuum that could be established. And then in the Beyond Beds paper with our subject matter experts that collaborated, we came up with 10 recommendations and we presented these nationally in a variety of different forums to think about what, what could be done 
if we really wanted to build this vital continuum of care, what are some basic recommendations? First of all, we said in recommendation one is to really think about the vital continuum. And many of us were, were remarking at this year's Nashbird conference about how we think that this conversation is actually shifting. We're even seeing it in media reports that the conversation is shifting, not always, but from go for inpatient beds only to what else is needed in a community to support the individuals. So in recommendation one, we said timely and appropriate outpatient supports are the first line of mental health care. When fully realized, they reduce the demand for inpatient beds, which in turn provide essential backup when psychiatric needs cannot be met in the community. In recognition of this dynamic, policymakers should prioritize and fund development of a full continuum of mental health care that improves outcomes for individuals with serious mental illness by incorporating a full spectrum of integrated and complementary services. Recommendation two was terminology. We found the national conversation had gotten, gotten all confused because people were talking about beds. We weren't even having the same conversation. And even as we tried to define them, for example, what's a public bed? Well, is a public bed a state bed, a county bed, a bed that's used on an acute unit that happens to be used by a person who's on Medicaid? I mean, what is a public bed? So terminology became a part of the conversation. We can't answer the question if we don't even use the same words. How do we think about um, conducting a national initiative to standardize terminology for all levels of care, of, clini of clinical care for mental illness, including inpatient and outpatient treatment in acute, transitional, rehabilitative, long-term settings operated by both the public and private sectors. Linkages was our third recommendation. Policymakers should recognize that the mental health com community, justice, and public service systems are interconnected and should adopt and refine policies to identify and close gaps between them. This should include providing warm handoffs and other necessary supports to help individuals navigate between systems in which they are engaged. And we're seeing some of this happening as we're looking at potential opportunities, for example, for funding from the federal government for inreach while people are for people coming out of jails and prisons. And we're seeing warm handoff kind of supports being built more into the array of services. Criminal justice diversion, policymakers should fund and foster evidence-based programs to divert appropriate persons with serious mental illness from justice settings to the treatment system at all intercept points across the sequential intercept framework. These should be required to function in collaboration with correctional systems as indicated. Recommendation number five, psychiatric beds. You do need a sufficient number of psychiatric beds. So how do we identify those policies and practices that operate as disincentives to providing acute inpatient and other beds or that act as obstacles to psychiatric patients accessing existing beds where and when they are needed? For example, the IMD exclusion, which has had a lot of national conversation in the last since this was written. Hospitals benefiting from taxpayer dollar investments should be required to directly provide or ensure timely access to inpatient psychiatric beds as a condition of their public continued public funding. And we're seeing more and more states developing crisis bed registries, trying to get information um, for tracking to know where there are outliers in terms of regular access to those beds. EMTALA, the Emergency Treatment and Labor Act, federal and state and local agencies must monitor hospitals for their adherence to EMTALA and levy sanctions for its violation, including withholding of public funding. Hospitals with licensed psychiatric beds that refuse referred patients should similarly be sanctioned if monitoring shows that they have a record of refusing referred patients without legitimate cause. 
TBD Solutions helped the state of Michigan, for example, in looking at some of our access issues uh, for uh, inpatient psychiatric beds. And every state jurisdiction needs to understand what is happening at the hospital level. And again, I understand crisis residential is trying to avert the use of those hospitals, but we always want to make sure we have the right people in the right beds at the right time. And by ensuring that flow, just like we have for medical services, that's a way to address that. Data, for policymakers, researchers, and private enterprise to effectively address the role of mental illness in public affairs and to identify and expand practices that improve individual and community outcomes, more complete and current data are needed. Policymakers should prioritize and fully fund the collection and timely publication of all relevant data on the role and intersystem impacts of severe mental illness and best practices. Workforce, people were talking about that already. Policymakers should initiate mental health workforce assessments to identify, establish, and implement policies and public-private partnerships that help uh, overcome the structural obstacles to workers entering or staying in the field. Technology, creating and expanding programs that incentivize and reward the use of technology to advance care delivery, promote appropriate information sharing, and maximize continuity of care. Policymakers should require as a condition of such incentives that outcome data be reported to help identify the most effective technologies. And then finally, partnering. Policymakers should recognize the vital role that non-traditional partners outside the mental health system can play in improving mental health outcomes and encourage the support and inclusion of a broader range of invited stakeholders in processes and practices around mental illness, policy, and practice, whether that's families, peers, faith-based organizations, whoever the stakeholders might be. And so changing the paradigm from just the demand for beds, inpatient beds, state beds, to thinking about all the different array of, of supports that an individual might need, ranging from self-care and integrated behavioral health into primary care, which is a major driver of policy right now, all the way up through the various levels of care that might be needed. And so these were the recommendations that, that came out of NASHBID in 2017 and, um, and have been helping to drive some of the conversation and think about policymakers. Now, not everything is possible. And obviously, these were lofty recommendations. These were aspirational. Um, they are things that I think many of us are, uh, are, are working toward. And, and I can certainly speak on, 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 um, from my experience that we see efforts moving in this direction, there's always counterbalancing forces, budgets are constrained, priorities have to be shifted, and that's understood, but having this national conversation and a placeholder is part of it. We went from that, that set of recommendations in 2018 to really frame the conversation from, a higher, from an even higher vantage point with this idea of these bold goals. And by thinking about these bold goals, the way we've thought about cancer and HIV, we can perhaps tackle some of the thorniest issues within mental health services, including full, fully accessing screening and identification, um, making access to effective medication and evidence-based therapies fully available, um, being compliant with legal requirements. We heard a little bit before about network adequacy as one of those legal requirements uh, to make sure that the full continuum of psychiatric care is accessible having access without delay to all the levels of care necessary, diversion again from the justice system, 
homeless people with serious mental illness permanently being housed, 100% of suicides being prevented. Setting bold goals has sometimes driven our policymakers, our practitioners, and even just every member of our society to be share to share a to share a framework that can help carve a path forward. And then uh, this year, looking at um, a, another level of the framework, the directive was let's let's think about internationally what's going on. And ironically, Lauren Mosher's name came up again, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But um, internationally, what can we learn about what is what do mental health services look like in other communities? So for example, um, looking at uh, big data as a driver for improving mental health services and individual outcomes. Again, accessing effective medication and promising therapies. There's a lot of research now looking at clozapine, for example, and its differential utilization across different countries. Um, we have uh, a lot to learn about the regulatory framework of medications. We're seeing this in the opioid framework as well as we're trying to get more access to medication-based therapies for people with opioid use disorder. This whole concept of, of voluntary services first, uh, a lot of states are expanding on, or shifting and including Michigan's shifting their laws around assisted outpatient commitment, but at the same time in the international dialogue and even in the national dialogue, many states are passing laws looking at supported decision-making as the framework upon which to rest, which really changes that conversation to building engagement strategies, building treatment alliance, and helping people make their own decisions. So we will be reconciling, I think, in years to come, how we juxtapose when the law allows us to intervene, for example, with a commitment order, versus what the person individually wants. These are going to be some tension points that we're going to be, we're already seeing, I think there's about eight states that have already passed supported decision-making laws. Also, there's a real push for psychiatric advanced directives, in, and that would include having people put out there in writing, as we do for medical conditions, how we would like our condition to be treated in the event that we become incapacitated from our condition, often assigning a proxy decision-maker for ourselves. So learning a lot about what's happening in the, in, the national, in the international dialogue around this is going to help us as we think about, for example, with crisis residential services, is this part of somebody's plan? Is this part of somebody's crisis plan? We're always, I'm always talking about what's the crisis plan. We know this person wants to do well. We hope they will do well. We hope the supports will be in place for them to do well and not need crisis services. But eventually somebody might need crisis services, so we always have to be planning ahead of time. How do we think about integrating culture and spirituality into our mental health care? If you look around the world at some of the international practices, it's, it's remarkable. I had the, the um, fortunate opportunity in my career to spend a little bit of time in New Zealand as a practicing psychiatrist. And, and uh, I was really very, very much um, impressed with, despite the adversity with um, some of the issues around the different um, cultural tensions, how on the psychiatric unit we had available to us cultural consultants who could help us understand from a cultural lens what the person was experiencing and whether their belief system was in line with their culture 
or not in line with their culture. I also was very impressed with the idea that I had somebody on an acute psychiatric unit who might have had a family member die out in the community, and the entire community, the culture, the tribe, the Maori tribe, came and helped escort that person to the funeral services because they weren't, that would have been terrible for them to miss those. And so the entire community surrounded that individual. In the United States, the chances of that happening would probably be less because we would be so nervous about the person's level of psychosis, and they may not have that community support system in place to support them. But it was a real eye-opener to me about to see what, what could be possible. And in this uh, brief literature review on um, culture and spirituality, it was, it was uh, some of the studies that are out there showing about how we can do better around integrating uh, a person's personal aspects of themselves into the care that we deliver is so important as we think about serving people in less restrictive settings or even in restrictive settings. Mental health community care and prioritization of continuity. I'll talk a little bit about that, but that's really the idea that, you know, uh, and I, I spent a lot of time talking to people about this. Mental health, serious mental illness is a chronic illness. It has, recovery is certainly possible and, and probable and hopeful, but it is like living with other chronic illnesses where we have to make sure that we have continuity of care. We don't want to have disrupted treatment. If I have diabetes, I want to make sure if I need insulin that I can get my insulin no matter where I am. I don't want to have to wait three days because I happen to have, have been placed in another setting where they have no access to my insulin. So how do we think about the community as a way of being providing continuous care for individuals? How do we think about um, the emerging models that are coming out of Australia largely, talking about how to calculate how many inpatient beds does a community actually need and what would it take to understand? What are the different frameworks? What are the different kind of methods that a community can use to calculate proper bed need? And that will help calculate, as Travis was pointing out, proper need for other types of services like crisis residential. What would be the appropriate level of, of access that should be made available? Also, uh, improving correctional conditions and alternatives to incarceration. There's a whole movement out there um, looking at, for example, the architectural design of correctional facilities. And if you look at some other countries, you can see some correctional facilities where inmates are given control of their lights, they're given uh, control over the heat and cold in their, in their, where they're staying, their cell, if you will. They're given access to kitchen services where they can actually cook and not lose those skills. And so that when they leave the prison setting, they've actually had more ability to integrate uh, and thinking about alternatives to incarceration that are more community-based and thinking about what are the frameworks that we can do. If we are going to have correctional settings, and that's maybe where our country is right now, but if we are going to have them, how do we have them in a way that's actually going to be more mindful of people who are going to need to be there? And so looking at some of the international practices, I think, is, can really help us understand some of the ways that in the United States we really have a lot of room for improvement. Um, disaster response and opportunity for sustained uh, improvement. The world looks at the United States for a lot of solutions and a lot of ways that we've innovated. And for sure, we've, we've come a long way in understanding disaster response. But really, we also have to look at what the world has done. 
When you think about what the world has done, for example, in Haiti after the earthquakes and some of the, some of the efforts on mental health services and how the disaster created some ability to sustain services, so going into the disaster response is thinking also about when the, when the immediacy of the needs of the disaster end, what are going to be the sustained service needs is really an, some lessons can be learned about this. And then mental health as public health, really thinking about mental wellness as a part of a public health framework. Pub public health has often taken up suicide prevention as its big mental health uh, initiative. And public health, you know, you think about healthy diet and healthy eating to help your reduce your cardiovascular risk. But we're also learning more, and a lot of countries are taking up mental health as part of public health. Your mental well-being, we're seeing this in the United States, yoga classes, meditation, access to those kinds of activities are going to be important. But those are also ways to help uh, think about how to drive the conversation forward around what would it take to have that full continuum and be preventive in our thinking as well as responsive. The big data, I'm just going to highlight a few of these that I've already mentioned. The big data, for example, we see in the United States, one good example is out of the Camden, New Jersey, the Camden Coalition, that integrated data sets from all the different systems so that providers could actually know who were the super utilizers and target interventions that could support their success. In the international community, for example, there's a national health insurance research database in Taiwan. There's the Norwegian patient registrar, the Danish patient registry. And all of these take big data, feed it in, and help understand how to drive services, how to think about the epidemiology of illness, and how to think about what are the needs of the people that we're trying to serve. The mental health community care and prioritization of community uh, really looks at models across countries that um, basically rate themselves, for example, on their level of mental health care, looking at different models. For example, Australia just put out a study. They said they have a lot of studies looking at youth. They've got a lot of studies looking at older adults. They focused a study on the adult, the needs of the adult population. Ireland did a special study looking at the needs of older adults. Trieste is where I bring you back to Lauren Mosier, who spent a lot of time in Italy. And when we were friends, I was always like, why are you going to Italy so much? I learned about Trieste. Trieste Italy is one of the places in the, in the world that's been recognized by the World Health Organization as a community that has developed innovative solutions for that continuum of care. When the government of Italy closed some of the governmental hospitals, Trieste became a model. It's an exemplar of systematized community response. They have conferences every year that you can go to, and they basically have calculated approaches to how many inpatient beds they need, how many residential crisis services they need, how many workers they need of different disciplines across the entire community. They have a very calculated framework. They have an initiative on workforce development so that everybody within the community is getting the same message. On, and it's not a siloed experience. Um, two two uh, communities, San Francisco and Los Angeles, are looking at the Trieste model to see whether it's adaptable in the United States. Something I think important for people in the crisis residential services business to think about as another um, a model. Again, looking at also at the end of the day, if there are going to be inpatient bed needs, what are those bed needs going to be? How are those how are those examined? What's the tipping point for a community? For example, one method is looking at the tipping point calculation to understand making sure you have the right uh, 
the right beds, but you can't, again, figure out the right number of inpatient beds without strengthening your linkages to help mitigate the disruption in care and make sure that community tenure is maximized and crisis residential services plays a role in that, a critical role uh, in that continuum. So what will it take to build the continuum, to continue to build the continuum? Conferences like these to learn about your own experiences, getting messages clear about that full continuum and what it actually means, building stakeholder support and alignment, developing a strategy to put the recommendations in action, identifying objective, measurable deliverables in realistic timeframes. These are very similar to the future directions that were presented in the plenary address before mine. Identifying what requires legislation, policy, training, or other approaches, and recognizing that each step in the continuum will require next steps. We don't end, we don't solve the problem, we solve this problem, and then we figure out how to solve other problems because the needs of the people are going to be evolving just like we're all evolving in our thinking. So again, I want to thank you very much for inviting me to speak. It's been a pleasure to be here. I look forward to hearing more from the day, and I will stop there. Okay, full disclosure, it is very difficult to hear the audience member's question here, but they are asking something about the DSM and the future of diagnosing or pathologizing certain mental illnesses. And so listen for Dr. Pinel's response. Yeah, I, you know, the DSM, the DSM is evolving. They're actually working on text revisions right now. Um, and it evolves based on the science that evolves. So I can't predict which direction we will end up going in, just like you know, we learned years ago that neurosyphilis was really one of the reasons why people were looking psychotic. Now we know it's syphilis and we can treat it early with penicillin. So who, who knows where, where we will go in, that, in, in terms of that direction. The, the differentiation between the subtypes of schizophrenia was thought to be not as reliable or valid across different raters, and it wasn't as they weren't as scientifically discernible in terms of what we know about the brain science. And so that's why those categories were compressed into, into the diagnosis. Um, it doesn't mean that we might not see other science emerging related to that. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Let me give you the microphone. Good morning. Um, thank you very much, Doctor, for bringing up the you know the the issues of culture and spirituality. Um, lately, especially in, in crisis residential services in California, um, we have such a diverse group of individuals who we serve on a daily basis, and that is one of the things that we often see. You know the 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 different healing practices. So, I hope for Travis and all the board members that in the near future, this will be something that we can discuss. But thank you very much for sharing the Maori culture. Appreciate it, and all of the information that you've just shared. Yeah, and if you want to see more about that, um, the, uh, the, the three papers that I highlighted today are all free and publicly available. And, and 
the, the international paper is like really heavily referenced and I, I did that on purpose because a lot of the materials is in the gray literature, you can just link it. So there's a whole section on culture and spirituality and you'll be very interested to see some of it. And I, you know, I would say SAMHSA has a technical assistance center for tribes. Uh, so there's, there are ways that I think we're working on this in our country, um, but it's just interesting to look at some of what's been put out through the, through the international literature on uh, integrating practice and getting groups like organizations like a crisis to put out white papers and to think about some of the cultural needs that go um, beyond one particular culture. So thank you for recognizing that. Anything else? Okay. Well, thank you again for your attention. Really appreciate it. <laughs> The paper that Dr. Deborah Pinels referenced, Beyond Borders, is also now available on the NASHPID website, nasmhpd.org. Don't forget to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 